Heavenly Father, thank you for just the amazing example of Peter, as well as those he is writing to, who, as far as we understand, stood up for you and stood strong in the midst of persecution, and thus were your vessels in establishing the early church, where we could be where we are 2,000 years later. Well, we have spent many weeks, many months studying this book, studying the reality of difficulties, of trials, and especially persecution. As we come to the close of First Peter, I pray that you would give us a reminder of all that we've learned, that we would be able to put into practice how persecution and trials and suffering can be productive for your glory. In Jesus' name, amen. Well, I think it's now become a tradition that our choir's presence at our church is signal if the decorations and the weather around you were not enough, that it is that time of year. We've come to a season of a family and friends and holidays, decorations, good food, time off of work. But we also come to that time of year, the season of <coughs> coughing. Phlegm, fevers, flu, snot, tissues, days off of work that aren't holidays. And as uncomfortable as those things may be, especially as a cough may be. You ever had a really bad cough, bronchitis or a cold or the flu, and you just keep coughing? It keeps you up at night, and so it really ruins your day. You haven't slept well, and so the, if you muscle up and you're allowed back into work the next day, you can't function right. You can't concentrate because you're up coughing. It interrupts your life. You can't even have a normal conversation if people are even willing to come close to you because they hear the coughing. You can't get through a sentence without coughing. It wears you out. In fact, many of us have even experienced where a cough from a simple cold actually hurts. However, if you've seen a doctor or you are a doctor, you know there's such a thing as a productive cough, a cough that's actually good for you in the midst of your sickness, a cough that you actually don't want to suppress with cough drops and medicine because of regardless of how difficult it is, it's actually doing something good. It's clearing out your lungs. It's helping you get better, stronger, healthier. And in the same way, persecution for the Christian, suffering for the Christian is difficult. Like that cough, it may keep you up at night. It interrupts your life. It wears you out. It even hurts. But it's doing something good. On a spiritual level, it makes you better. It makes you stronger. It makes you healthier. We have seen this in so many ways from so many angles over the past year or so as we've unpacked First Peter, the background of which is Peter writing to members of the other church who are being severely persecuted. And if you've been around, you know that this persecution is not just people ignoring you, not taking you out to lunch, being rude to you in the office. This is death. Some of these women were being raped. They're being beaten. They're be- they were... They were suffering for the sake of the Lord. And in all of those passages, we see that there's something bigger. There's something that God is doing. There's something that these believers are to hope in. There there are things, there are people, there are 
very real eternal places that we, in the midst of our persecution or any trial or any suffering, are to hope for, are to long for, are to trust in God and His sovereignty. And as we come really to the, the last passage of First Peter before he just gets into some personal greetings, First Peter 5, 10 and 11, he brings up this theme again and just concludes his teaching on suffering to remind them that you can, as a believer, in the midst of something that just feels like it's beating you down, can actually build you up. There is such a thing as productive persecution. There is such a thing as productive suffering. Follow along as I read 1 Peter 5, verses 10 through 11. After you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace who called you to His eternal glory in Christ will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. To Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. Understand that trials or difficulties or persecution are not productive in and of themselves. In other words, when you read something or hear something in the news and someone is clearly going through a difficult time, just the fact that they're suffering is not productive. There are different components that must be there in the midst of the suffering, in the mindset of the sufferer for difficulty to actually be productive. And so from these two verses this morning, I want to give you five roles necessary for productive trials. Five roles in your life as a Christian, especially in the midst of your suffering, that need to be there for your trial to be productive. The first role necessary for a productive trial is the precedent, which can also be pronounced the precedent. And that's the pronunciation I prefer because of the usage of this word I'm using, the precedent, the thing that must precede the productiveness of a trial. And I find that in the first section of verse 10 where Peter says, after you have suffered for a little while. And you understand the people who are reading this, right? I mean, we read this. We understand it's Scripture. Maybe you've read this before. We've been studying First Peter, and you're like, yeah, yeah, I get it. I get it. We're going to suffer. The trials are inevitable. God is sovereign, blah, blah, blah. But could you imagine these people after reading this letter where Peter has said, you who are being beaten by your master, you who are being raped by your husband, you who are being abused, continue to be patient, continue to endure, continue to suffer for the glory of of Christ, not taking vengeance, not getting angry, not rejecting the Christian way of life. And they hear these words after all that he has said, after you have suffered for a little while. There's no, it's going to be over. By the time you get to this section of my letter, it's done. You're, so you're going to walk out and no one's going to persecute you anymore. He doesn't say that. He says, you're still suffering. And after you have suffered for a little while, could, could you imagine how discouraging this could be? But we have to understand the context of the whole book. We have to understand what is going on, not only in what Peter is writing, but what is going on in the hearts and minds of these new believers. And what we're talking about is how God will use our trials for our good and for His glory. So that good cannot happen without the trial. In other words, if the trial is how something good happens, the trial has to occur 
for this to be produced. And you say, well, that's fine by me. (laughs) I'd rather not have trials anyway. You can keep your whatever productivity is going to happen. But when you think back to all that God does through trials, and even in your own experience, what God has done in your life through trials, for some of you using trials to bring you to faith in Jesus Christ, to make you more like Him, then we understand the beauty of all of this, the refining, the strengthening, the growing, the building up. Again, not easy, but God has a plan and He is producing a greater worshiper, a deeper worshiper through these trials. I'm not saying you should go out and pray and invite trials, but trials will come and through them we accept what God is doing. And as we unpack our passage, our short passage for this morning, we'll see that the end of all of this involves our spiritual growth. And isn't that what we want? To be more like Christ? Really, as a believer, isn't that your greatest frustration, whatever sin you're struggling with? I don't do X enough. Pray, think about God, worship, treat people nicely, whatever it may be. And so we want to grow spiritually. And one of the main ways that God does this and produces a spiritual growth is through difficulties. And Peter here says that this suffering is for a little while. And it's not that the original readers are being persecuted and that their persecutors are going to have a change of heart. Peter can't promise that. That may never happen. These people may not relent until the Christians are dead. And and, and we know from history that that's what happened in many cases. That individual Christian that they're persecuting ended up dying. Some of them even killed them. This is not what Peter is saying. He's not saying your suffering's going to end soon in your timeline. We understand that. You know Christians who are suffering with a disease that they know, the doctors know, the world of science knows, there is no cure for This disease will either be the end of you or will still be in your body when your life is over. So what is he talking about here? How can he say that after we have suffered for a little while, such and such will happen? This is big picture. He's talking about the big picture, the end of all things. We sum it up as Christians as saying the return of Christ. This is what he's talking about. And from our perspective, the suffering may last a very long time because we get eternity. Well, we don't get it, but we understand that there is an eternity. And so we can intellectually understand that even if I suffer for my whole life, being 80, 90, 110 years on this earth, that's short compared to eternity, but still, that's a long time on earth years. That's a long time considering our experience. But we have to understand that this is from God's perspective. And from God's perspective... Regardless of how long you suffer as a Christian in this body, it is but a drop in the bucket. And it's a drop to him because of his eternal eternality, his eternal perspective. And it's not just a perspective for him. He lives in eternity. But oh, how much he can accomplish in that little drop. We've seen this in First Peter. We have seen various passages addressing specifically the trials and the suffering and the persecution, and all of it is connected to something good. In that little drop, God is doing something good. None of it is, never does Peter say, I'm so sorry, you have to go through this. Never does he say, you know, this is horrible, it's just going to get worse, and that's it, I don't know what to say. He always connects it 
to an eternal perspective. And I think it's appropriate this morning because we've come to the end of the letter to do some review. Turn back to 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 and 7. 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 6 through 7. He says, In this you greatly rejoice, even though now for a little while, if necessary, you have been distressed by various trials, so that the proof of your faith, being more precious than gold, which is perishable, even though tested by fire, may be found to result in praise and glory and honor at the revelation of Jesus Christ. It's okay if you don't remember back then. It was a while ago, but we talked about that trials confirmed the authenticity of our faith and refines it so that our eternal reward is great and we give glory to God. Then we jump to 1 Peter 2, verses 19 through 24. For this finds favor if for the sake of conscience toward God a person bears up under sorrows when suffering unjustly. For what credit is there if when you sin and are harshly treated you endure it with patience? But if when you do what is right and suffer for it, you patiently endure it, This finds favor with God. For you have been called for this purpose since Christ also suffered for you, leaving you an example for you to follow in his steps, who committed no sin nor was any deceit found in his mouth. And while being reviled, he did not revile in return. While suffering, he uttered no threats, but kept entrusting himself to him who judges righteously. And he himself bore our sins in his body on the cross, so that we might die to sin and live to righteousness, for by his wounds you were healed. And again, we see we are modeling Christ. Through trials, we please the Lord and we become more Christ-like as we endure in the same way that he endured. And that is when we suffer for righteousness' sake as Jesus did. Then 1 Peter 3.14, But even if you should suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. There's no woe is you, woe is me here. He says, if you suffer for the sake of righteousness, you are blessed. And when we looked at that passage, we saw that this is talking about a future reward, a future blessing. And trials help us. They relieve us of the burden that we have of sinfully attaching ourselves to the things of this world and focusing on the greater good and the greater reward which will one day come. 1 Peter 4, verses 1 and 2. Therefore, since Christ has suffered in the flesh, arm yourselves also with the same purpose, because he who has suffered in the flesh has ceased from sin, so as to live the rest of the time in the flesh no longer for the lusts of men, but for the will of God. We're reminded there that, again, those who suffer for the sake of Christ are shown to be true believers because people who are faking it, when difficulties come, they're like, I'm out of here. Coffee at that church is not that good, right? All the, all the external benefits they may have from being around Christians, that's not worth it when people are going to start beat you up, beating you up because you're in that church. And so we know that we are real, that we are truly Christians because we are willing to endure the suffering, the persecution. And in the same way, we're shown to be no longer living for the lusts of the flesh. We now live for Christ. And that will grow and that will be refined as the trials refine us. We grow in our commitment to righteousness. Verses 12 and 13 in 1 Peter 4. Beloved, do not be surprised at the fiery ordeal among you, which comes upon you for your testing as though some strange thing were happening to you. 
but to the degree that you share the sufferings of Christ, keep on rejoicing so that also at the revelation of His glory you may rejoice with exultation. Again, we are seen to hope for the return of Christ in an even deeper way. And this was one of my favorite passages because of that picture of the goldsmith's purifying furnace where he takes this mixed metal and puts it in and melts it so that all the dross, all the bad stuff can be floating to the top and he wipes it away and then over and over again he refines so that it is pure gold. And if you remember the picture, the metallurgist always keeps his eye on the thermometer and on the clock. God knows what you're going through. He doesn't just send you a trial and say, let's see what happens. He has his handle on things. You are always in his grasp like that gold is in that pan, in the hands of the goldsmith. He will not let you go through more than He is willing to let you handle. And this grows us in our appreciation of Him and will lead to exuberant joy when He returns. And that may be it. That may be it for some of us. That the trials that God allows in our lives are to show us that you just love the world too much. First John, over and over again, he who loves the world is not righteous, does not belong to God, hates God, right? And sometimes we need those trials to break those ropes that we have securing us to the things of the world. Finally, just a couple weeks ago, First Peter 5, 6 and 7, therefore humble yourselves under the mighty hand of God, that He may exalt you at the proper time, casting all your anxiety on Him because He cares for you. Sometimes we need a trial so great that we finally say, there is absolutely nothing in my power that can change this. To teach us to just start unloading our anxieties on the Lord. To trust in Him, to lean on Him, to humble us by forcing us to trust in His timing and His will and not ours. The common thread in all of this is for us to have a proper view of trials is to know who God is and trusting Him to be and do according to His character and promises. And this leads us to our second rule necessary for productive trials the protagonist. Peter says, the one who is doing all of this is the God of all grace. If you remember back to your classes in high school or junior high, the protagonist of any story is the main character. And you need to understand that this story, what story? Every story is not about you. It's about him. He's the main character. He's the center of the story. The protagonist is the one who makes the key decisions, and it is those decisions and those in that novel you are reading that propel the story forward. That is God in our lives, not us. And one of the key ways to help us through difficulties is to remember that this life, our story, is ultimately not our story. It's His story. He is the main character. We have the privilege of being characters in God's story, but we are not the main characters. He is the central figure. And when you understand that you are not even the central figure in your own life, you're going to get it. 
then trials are going to be productive. Because ultimately, everything is about Him, His will, His glory, His good pleasure. Yes, we pursue things. Yes, we want family, and that's a, that's a blessed thing. Yes, you want to own a home. Yes, you want to have a good job. Yes, you want your kids to have a good education. Wonderful. Praise God. Just understand that when trials come because you don't get those things or getting those things is harder than you think, it's because it's not your story. It's His. And we let go and we understand that He is sovereign. He is powerful. And the wonderful thing about this is unlike a human protagonist, God doesn't just use and abuse us for selfish gain. We're, we're, not, just, we're not just side characters in a story where He just uses us so that this, this one main story can be interesting and fun and get the readers engaged. No. He doesn't just play with our lives and circumstances like we're pawns in some sort of cosmic game that he's playing. No, he showers us with love. He gives us responsibility. He gives us care, concern, and grace. He is, as Peter writes, the God of all grace. And this builds on, again, various parts of the letter that we previously read. Right off the bat in 1 Peter chapter 1, verses 1 and 2, he says, Peter, an apostle of Jesus Christ, to those who reside as aliens scattered throughout Pontus, Galatia, Cappadocia, Asia, and Bithynia, who are chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, by the sanctifying work of the Spirit, to obey Jesus Christ and be sprinkled with His blood, may grace and peace be yours in the fullest measure. It's kind of funny, almost ironic that he says all of these things that typify, exemplify God's grace, sprinkled sprinkled by his blood, chosen according to the foreknowledge of God the Father, may grace be yours. You just, it's already there. We already have it. You just described it. 1 Peter 1 verse 13, therefore prepare your minds for action. Keep sober in spirit. Fix your hope completely on the grace to be brought to you at the revelation of Jesus Christ. Even the command to serve, 1 Peter 4.10, one of my favorite verses in Scripture, as each one has received a special gift, employ it in serving one another as good stewards of what? The manifold grace of God. Even in our actions, even in our serving one another, it is displaying manifesting God's grace to one another. In 1 Peter 5.5, God is opposed to the proud, but gives grace to the humble. We know that the rest of the Scriptures testify to the grace of God. He is the God of all grace. And this reminder sets us up to fully understand the goodness of God in what He is doing in our lives, even in the midst of persecution. And what He is now doing in our lives is because of what He has done in the past in our lives, which we are reminded of in our third rule necessary for productive trials, the prerequisite. The prerequisite. Speaking of God says, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ. Peter reminds us, that we have been called to an eternity with Him. The prerequisite to having a productive trial is that you must be a believer. You have to be a Christian because the productivity in your persecution is within you. 
That you, you can find productivity in the trials of non-Christians for some worldly sense. Well, it's really rough, too bad that that happened to them, but at least he donated his heart. Or the kids got an inheritance. Or whatever it may be. But what we're talking about here is, as wonderful as those things are, a greater good in the growing of God's people. And it's an interesting way that he phrases the calling that we have. This eternity that he speaks of is in glory, where there will be no sin, no effects of sin, and more to the point, no persecution. So again, you could be persecuted heavily for years and years and years, but in eternity there will be no persecution because where we will be on our side of eternity, there will be no persecutors. There will be no enemies of God, no enemies of Christians. There will be no sin. And there's a clear contrast here between the eternal glory forever and ever, glory, glory, glory never ends, and suffering for a little while. It may seem strange to talk about our salvation in the future tense, but this really puts everything into perspective. The grace that we read about in the last point speaks so often of the future inheritance that is ours, the future glory, to hope for a day when we will be with Christ, when all of this difficulty will be over and gone. And this is true for us because we belong to God. We don't belong here. Sure, we look like people who belong here. We dress the same way. We have the same jobs. We interact with them. We drive the same cars, ride the same buses, whatever it may be. But we do not belong here. We are not of this place, this planet, this world. We belong to a heavenly kingdom, a glorious realm that looks nothing like this. And though that future is secure, and though we belong there, We are here now to represent our King as ambassadors, as foreigners, as aliens in a worldly kingdom. And that means that we will face trials and persecution because we are foreigners visiting a land that by their very nature is at war with our kingdom. We will face the temptations in our flesh of the devil who prowls around like a roaring lion seeking someone to devour. And in those times, be it those short-lived fleeting times, remember that we have been called in Christ to a future that awaits us in heaven with our King. Though we represent Him here now in a world system, as we saw last week, controlled by someone else. And because we belong there and not here, we are different. We are children of the holy and living God. Yet, like those who are not, we live in the flesh being tempted by our flesh. And while we are here in the flesh, God wants us to be tomorrow better than we are today. So He grows us. He challenges us. And we are, when we are proud and we are, when we are stubborn or perhaps when we are humble and God sees us fit to get to the next level of spiritual growth, if I could put it that way, 
He often uses trials. He uses difficulties. What does he do in those difficulties? And this brings us to the meat of the passage from which we get our fourth role necessary for productive trials, the procedure. How does he do this? The end of verse 10. He will himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. This is the plan that shows us how deeply and powerfully productive suffering can be. This is how he's going to do it. And the first thing to note is that it is God. It says he himself will do these things, the God of all grace to be exact. He works through the trials. He brings the trials to their strategic goal that he has planned in his mind and his sovereignty. So understand that it's not the trials themselves that perfect us, but the one who is sovereign over those trials. It is not the temptations that strengthen us, but the one who provides the way of escape from those temptations. And Peter says, he himself will perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you. And that word himself that we see there explains the personal nature of what he is doing. He is personally going to do it. He doesn't just flick the first domino and a hundred dominoes down is that trial that's going to grow you. He doesn't send an angel. He is doing it personally. Yes, he will use other people, circumstances, experiences, but it is God himself right there directly involved in those people, in those circumstances, in those experiences. And he does it with personal loving, intimate involvement in your life. And that's a comfort. Just that word himself is a comfort in the midst of trials. Because when you feel like God is far away, you use that famous phrase to yourself, I don't care how you feel. (laughs) Because your feelings are lying. Because he's not far away, he's right there. What exactly is he doing? First, he's perfecting or restore, if you have the ESV or NIV. It means to put in order, to make something whole. And it has the idea of mending something or reestablishing something. Perhaps I'll help you to understand that the same Greek word was used uh, in, as a medical term that would speak of setting a broken bone so that it could be Mended, fixed. This could also be used to speak of uh, repairing or refitting a damaged vessel, a damaged boat, for example. And in our lives, this means that through our suffering, God is fixing whatever is broken in our character so that ultimately our relationship with Him will be fully restored. And I think the picture of setting a broken bone is very fitting here. Because I've never broken a bone and, and, and had a cast and had a doctor have to reset it. But I can assume it's quite uncomfortable, that it's scary, and it most likely hurts a lot. But it'll fix the bone. And this is true of trials. They're uncomfortable to say the least. They are scary. And oftentimes they will hurt a lot. But God is fixing you 
through them. And the implication is that as this happens, we will be able to advance further in victory over the remaining corruptions of our life, the remaining sins and spiritual weaknesses, so that slowly but surely we head towards God's goal in us, which is spiritual perfection. The idea of bringing to wholeness here is also seen in Philippians 1.6. For I am confident of this very thing, that He, God, who will begin a good work in you, will perfect it until the day of Christ Jesus. This is the same idea there. We're in the process of perfection. We're in the process of restoration. We are in the process of sanctification. Then he says that God will confirm, which means to set fast, to establish has to do with our inner person, our inner character, so that you are firm in your faith, you are established in your faith in the midst of these attacks and difficulties. And we saw that in all those passages that I read earlier, right? All these trials help us grow in our faith, in our commitment to God, in our trust in God. And this inner resolve that will grow through this trial is not just for that particular trial at hand, but will become part of you from here on out and thus the permanent spiritual growth. Then he says God will strengthen. Strengthen is exactly what it sounds like. To make strong, to make stable, to make sturdy. You could picture maybe an, an old shack, an old storage unit that someone built in their yard, and the, it's starting to rain, it's starting to be windy, and the thing is, is blowing in the wind, it's creaking and cracking, and so he goes out, and he puts in extra beams and more reinforcements and supports so that that little shack out there is now sturdy. But it's not with that new wood, now a second separate two structures, but the added support now becomes part of the original, and that's what God is doing by making us stronger. There may be, be new thoughts. There may be new attitudes. There may be new convictions. They're not just for that trial until the winds stop blowing. They now become a part of who you are. And you have been strengthened. And the, God, the way God makes us sturdy through trials is by giving us the courage to stand strong and endure. This is also done through the grace He provides during those times when we so desperately need it to carry on. I would imagine most of you are not familiar uh, with the city of Tirana or the country of Albania, what it's like. And a lot of times people just imagine the worst, and, and they're imagining the worst is often accurate. In fact, you guys remember the Brackets who've been serving in Croatia for years and years, uh, probably decades by now, and they, they finally said, well, we visited where you used to be missionaries in Tirana, Albania. He's like, wow, what a city. <laughs> and it was rough just for the few days he was there for a conference, and people often ask us, especially having grown up in, in, in the United States where we have running water, and we have electricity all the time. And we have standards of hygiene in the food industry. And people always ask us, well, you know, how did you survive there? And our standard answer, because you know it's kind of in passing, they're not really asking for an elaborate answer, we always say this, God gives grace. God gives grace. Some of you have heard me say that to you. Well, you know, I know I'm supposed to do this for my job or I have to do this. How am I going to do it? And I say, God gives grace. What do we mean by that? When I say God gives grace, 
I mean that He strengthened us to do what we needed to do with joy and perseverance regardless of the difficulties, regardless of the uncomfortable circumstances, regardless of the racism against Chinese there, regardless of the fact that even though we had a nice newer apartment, my wife slept in the winter with gloves and a wool beanie on. God gives grace. We didn't sit there, man, this is crazy. This, how did we do it? I don't know how we did it. And we now, back in the United States, we think back to how we slept, how we lived, how we endured, and we're like, that was crazy. How did we do that? Like, even now, even though I did it, I can't imagine doing it now, even though I did it. Because God gives grace. And all that is part of me now. Right? Even in little practical things. Someone serves me up a dirty plate on a restaurant, I don't even think twice. Right? I'm just, you, this is, this is, God has done that. How in, in different ways in my, my spirituality? I don't know, but I would imagine that in His sovereignty, you all through my preaching have, been, have, have received that. I don't know if I can pinpoint that. Oh, if I didn't go to Albania, I wouldn't have been able to do that. But through difficult times, God sustains us. God gives grace. And finally, he says, establish. This speaks of laying a foundation or providing a solid foundation. And the picture uh, you could have is the fact that you didn't even think twice as you sat down today. That that chair would just, the legs would just fold under you. Or really more to the, the picture that this word brings is, I don't think anyone walked in here and thought, man, I hope they really laid a a foundation of concrete under this cafeteria because I'm just going to sink through this, you know, there's a hundred people in here now. Are we just going to sink through the floor? Nobody thought that because you just assume that there's a strong foundation. And so you feel secure. Maybe not now after I said that, but in general you feel secure, right? You can stomp your feet. You can, kids will run in here, right? You don't, you're not scared. Right? You may even shake a little. Oh, good, great. It's retrofitted for earthquakes, right? And this is the same idea. To have a, a security and comfort that, that we don't have, right? We're anxious during trials. We're anxious just the thought of trials or persecution, but through it, God establishes us and brings us and, and solid. We're already on a solid foundation, Jesus Christ. But through our demeanor, through our, our, our fears and growing out of those, we are secure on that foundation of His Word and His character. And we are reminded that we are on the solid Word based on Jesus Christ and His Word, not on sinking sand. We think we're on sinking sand sometimes, right? Don't we, we, we use that terminology during difficult times at work or during trials. How are you doing? You know, I know God is good and He's seen me through it, but man, I am drowning. I'm drowning. I can barely keep my head above water. I, I can't, you know, I can't breathe. Pray for me. We use that. I mean, it's not literally, maybe literally. I can't breathe one. But that's what we feel like. And this is the idea that through these trials and, and teaching us to trust in Him and seeing us through that, we go, man, I, I was, you know, I felt like I was drowning, but I was standing on the pier. I was standing on solid ground. Not one of those wooden ones that'll rot, but a, a cement one, Right? 
solid ground. And this is what he's doing. He's establishing us. And, and, and you know me, if you've been around. Some of you don't know me. Thanks for visiting. But the rest of you, you know me, right? I like to be thorough. I like to explain every word for the simple fact that if God has said it, we better get it right. And the best way to get it right is to define and pick apart every single word he has given us. And I want you to understand every aspect of this work of the Lord in you. But what is important is not remembering the definition of all those four words. What is important is the big picture and the main point that Peter is making, and that is what they all mean together. All of them together are saying the same thing. In your trials, God is making you stronger and immovable. And he wants you to be able to face spiritual battles, spiritual temptations, spiritual persecution. They're all making that same point. And how does he do that? Through suffering. So we have five roles necessary for effective trials. The precedent, the protagonist, the prerequisite, the procedure, and finally, number five, the province the province, or the sphere of authority or function. For all of what we've said to be helpful, we need to be sure that God is in fact able to do what He has said He will do. In 1 Peter 5.11, Peter ends with this doxology, this praise, to Him be dominion forever and ever. Amen. This doxology celebrates God's power in light of everything we saw in verse 10. All that God says He will powerfully do. In other words, after unpacking verse 10, after writing this as inspired by the Holy Spirit, Peter can do nothing else but burst out in praise to God. This word dominion is God's strength, refers to in this context His ability to dominate a good word, isn't it? Dominate. Is that just kind of helping? Oh, this guy is being mean to you. I'll see what I can do. He dominates your situation. He is in total control. He has dominion over it. Everything is under his sovereign control. And it's easy when we think about dominion, that word, or his sovereign control, to think about large-scale things. Yes, he has dominion over the planetary orbits. He has dominion over sustaining ecosystems, which is true. But what we're being reminded of here is God's power and ability over your specific difficult situation. That in the big picture, you may even feel embarrassed to bring up in a prayer meeting or as a prayer request because you're like, this is hard for me, but I know other people are going through difficult things. You may think it's small in comparison. Personally, it's very hard for you. Even that significantly smaller thing in your life, God is over. In other words, dominion is like water poured over everything, right? It's going to fill the big gaps, but the little cracks too, and even the invisible cracks that you don't even know are there will be filled with water. And to me, that's amazing. Take a step back. I can't see them. Can you see it? Can you see Venus, Mars? Can you see them? Can you see the stars of the sky over which God has powerful dominion? And he has dominion over the fact that 
you have a tickle in your throat this morning and you're worried about taking more vacation days this holiday season. I don't know how much pollen has fallen from that tree since I started preaching, but God sovereignly ordained every one of those. And by the way, every other tree in existence. And at the same time, He is intimately and sovereignly over and caring for the fact that you're a little worried about your pregnancy right now. Or you're leaning towards discontentment because you think you've been single just a little too long. I understand these are hard things. These are things that stress us out. But I want to assure you that God isn't only concerned about the big things of nature and the, uh, the seemingly bigger people on this planet. He cares about you. And you need to remember that. In that trial, He hasn't left you. He hasn't deserted you. That issue is not too small for Him to be concerned about. He cares about you. And may His dominion be forever and ever. Amen. Because it is. He closes with amen as a further affirmation of what He just wrote. Think about it. God is the one who has planned and promised all these good things through our trials. Then isn't He the one who also deserves all the praise for all of these things? No matter what your affliction may be, your difficulty, your persecution, your trial, God is sovereign over that. God is growing you through that. But you have to have the right mindset. You have to understand that He is in control. You have to remind yourself of these things to trust in Him during trials. And again, I know it's difficult. And, you know, we we do these things, right? You do it, I do it. I'm not a big fan of it, even though I do it, where I kind of compare like, oh, man, you you think you're going through a difficult time? Look at these original readers. They were getting threatened to be killed for their faith. Uh, that doesn't, don't get me wrong, that doesn't mean what you're going through is, is not something that's hard for you. I get it. Right? Different people have different tolerance. Everyone in this, this church may say, that's nothing, just get over it, go over, get over it, right? But you're like, I, it's just hard for me, right? I mean, this is a really, really bad paper cut. No, I know, it's, I'm, just, I'm just trying to think of something really insignificant, right? Um, you know, but it's like, God is there. God cares. God, but with the right perspective, God is going to see you through it and grow you through it. And, and there's a gnat on my notes. I wonder if that's God telling me to close up here. No, I don't. I don't believe in that kind of thing. Anyways, five roles necessary for productive trials. The precedent, you need to experience difficulties before any of this can happen. The protagonist, The main character is God, not you. The prerequisite, that you are saved. The procedure, perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish. And the province, God and only God can do it, and we need to praise Him for it. And so, as Peter writes, after you have suffered for a little while, the God of all grace, who called you to His eternal glory in Christ, will Himself perfect, confirm, strengthen, and establish you To him be dominion forever 
and ever. Amen. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we thank You that over and over again over the past few months You have encouraged us and comforted us in trials. And now we're reminded once again that You are growing us through it. Father, in our selfishness, we get distracted by our own personal selfish wants. And yet, I know that every true believer here this morning, ultimately, their desire is to be more like You. And so in whatever way necessary, especially through our trials, I pray that You would just continue ratcheting that up to, to fix every angle that's out of place, every, every little thing in our lives and our character so that in everything our desire would just to be more, be more like You. Lord, help us through our trials that we would not complain, that we would not be tempted to shake our fist at You, that we would not give up, but that we would excel still more and learn what we what you want us to learn and to become more like you. And help us as a church on a, on a human level, on a practical level, to be those, that even as we grow in numbers, to be willing to open up to share and that the rest of us would come alongside and to help through par- prayer, through hugs, through support, through money, through, through rides, through just staying quiet and sitting there and weeping with each other, whatever it may be. Help us to be this kind of church, this kind of person, remembering that we are strangers and aliens here, that we belong to the greatest man who ever lived, who wept. May we not buy into the world's definition of masculinity or femininity, but to be the people that you have called us to be through trials, whether we are in them or helping others through them. In Jesus' name, amen.